You're listening to Errol Parker and Clancy Overall, editors of the Batuta Advocate on Desert Rock FM. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocate radio show, recording here live from the Old City District in Batuta. You're joined by myself, Clancy Overall, and editor-at-large, Errol Parker. And this week, we have a, a titan of investigative journalism and um, just Australian media in general. He's visiting Batuta, but just because he's a man of that age and in Western Queensland does not mean he's retired. <laughs> Chris Masters, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Far from a grey nomad. Oh, a little bit grey, yeah. <laughs> and it's still a nomad, though. My dad was a school teacher, and it was the only job that you, where you could be a nomad and have job security. Yeah, know? yeah. So I think that got, got into my system a bit. Uh, you did bounce around a little bit as, uh, as kids. You mid-North Coast boy and then educated in Sydney. Mid-North Coast, went down to Sydney for my last couple of years. Oh, right. Macquarie Boys High, Ray Hadley. Ray Price territory, you know, right. yeah. and then uh, last year of the leaving certificate, joined the ABC straight out of school, got married young, I was only you know like 20, three, three years later, and uh, married a Gunnedah girl before it became fashionable, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I missed, I missed those country towns, so did my wife, so you know, first chance we got, there's a more, more to it, but we bolted to the back to the bush. Yeah, right. So Canada, did you spend any time there? Or? Oh, no, well, I did at Tamworth. I was at the ABC at Tamworth. Yeah. I was at Albury. First day at Albury, I arrived there, very nervous because I hadn't really broadcast before, and I'm listening to the local radio station, and the mayor of Albury, Cleaver Bunton, happened to be one of the string of broadcasters. So mm. I can still remember the, uh, the first broadcast I listened into. He said... Here is the news from the Riverina in northeastern Victoria, prepared by Cleaver Bunton and read by Cleaver Bunton. Today, the Mayor of Albury, Alderman Cleaver Bunton, said... (laughs) 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 So, multi-skilling, yeah, that was was the truth. Yeah, and actually, uh, I mean, if if people ask me today where I really learned investigative journalism, it was in those little communities because you wake up in the morning and nothing's happened and you wake up the next day and nothing's happened again, you know. Whereas the people who are dumped in the big city newsrooms with lots of education and might necessarily get the education that matters because yeah. they, they never leave the studio oh, and they're given their stories. You can't really teach that in a classroom where if you dump like a young reporter into a community that's quite small that he's not familiar with, you've got to kind of work out for yourself how to borrow one of your terms, how to get inside the tent. Yeah, you know? and, yeah. And that is something that you can't really teach. So how did you really learn how to get in there in the first place? Well, you know, when I look back on it, I think most of what I learned was outside the industry. You know, if you, you wherever you come into the industry, you come, in, you come into a, a, a little sort of microculture and they teach you what they think is important. And the good thing about those stories out in the bush was, uh, one, you had to dig, so you had to meet people you really calibrated your moral compass. You had no choice because if you reported on people and you were a bit too tough on them, that, that you'd know it the next day. You couldn't be like an Alan Jones and yeah. be a coward behind the microphone and belt up everybody you like because you'd never run into them. You know, so 
that was a good thing. The other thing I think was interesting about it is that, as you know, as we Batuta boys know, when you grow up in a place like that, you talk to everybody. And this is very dangerous for journalists. You know, when I started doing the police corruption work, I saw there were a lot more experienced journalists around who weren't really going for that sort of stuff, and I, I wondered why. And then over time I came to realise that, you know, they'd go into toxic shock at the idea of talking to somebody with a tattoo, you know. Mm-hmm. It, whereas you, <laughs> you, you come from a rural community... You're used to talking to the mayor, you're used to talking to the guy who cleans the gutters, the yeah. footy coach, etc. And do you think it helps in that kind of cadetship or just outpost kind of position you're in where you actually are a bit of an outsider too and you're probably not looking to set up there forever? Well, that's also true. I remember that. You don't want to be born and raised in the no. town. You're, you're breaking no. stories in. <laughs> that was the problem. That was actually probably a big reason why I ended up back in the city, which wasn't, wasn't ever what I expect, expected, but... When you do the same story and then you do it again the next year and then the next year, you know, you start to look for challenges mm-hmm. a little bit. And and then, of course, a big story breaks in your area and you don't cover it. The guy who gets flown in from the city covers it, you know. So yeah. uh, I felt like I was starting to miss out a little bit too. The ABC has a reputation now for whatever government's in power or whatever, um, you know, rival media gripe they have with the ABC. There's, there's generational stigmas that the ABC carries. Right now, um, there's this narrative that Ida had to come in and, um, you know, belt these belt these lefties back into line. What was the atmosphere at Auntie when you first started? Was it was it a little religious or was it a little bit BBC or what was the... Very BBC, yeah. yeah you know, I was there after the dinner suit period, but yeah. still in all... Everybody sounded like Oxbridge, you know. Yeah. And then and, and the stories were the stuff they talked about it at North Shore dinner parties. It probably wasn't seen so much as lefty then. It was more kind of paternalistic uh, old England. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, having talked about that rural side, that's often forgotten. You know, like I actually didn't come up through the inner city lefty mm-hmm. lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was actually working in country town radio stations. Yeah. You know, people voted for the National Party. Yeah. And the National Party is still a big fan of the ABC yeah, yeah. because... They're in a lot of trouble if they say anything about them. That's right. Yeah. It's it's basically Batuta and the ABC that yeah. services the bush. <laughs> I'd always defend the ABC, but when I was away and I came back and I probably had a slightly different perspective on things, I, I, I would notice the left leaning yeah. but you know everybody leans some yeah, direction yeah. you have any funny stories from uh from the abc oh well when i first joined the abc uh this is this is this goes to the notion of abc pluralism of course i uh i was waiting at the king's cross uh, studios first day it was 1966 the commissioner was there they used to hire these former police officers and that who'd be the front of house and uh, I was sitting there waiting to be called for an interview and and a woman came rushing in in a panic and what had happened is, this is King's Cross, you know, and she'd been flashed at out in the street, in Forbes Street and uh, the commissioner was looking after her and then she started to to scream even louder because uh, the guy who flashed at her walked in and he was on his way to work at the ABC. (laughs) 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 So, yeah. I mean, they yeah. had the North Shore dinner party vibe, but they also had the um, you know inner city perverts as yeah, well. Yeah, you you wouldn't be getting that at uh, Channel Nine, would you? <laughs> <laughs>
Now, now tell us, when you started getting into the more investigative roles in town, did you kind of have to relish in that insider, outsider? You know, you'd been to the bush, you're now in the city mindset because, you know, as you said, there was a lot of people that one would have had trouble talking to anyone who could give them any good information about, you know, a police pedophile sex ring or, or, or police corruption or anything like that. But also they had sources that they didn't want to burn that they'd been using for oh, 20, 30 years. That's right. That's why the daily rounds don't really often crack the big stories in yeah. the daily rounds. Yeah. You know, the salary cap scandal was broken by Kate McClymont, you yeah. know, not a, not one of the sports reporters. Not a league reporter. <laughs> well, but, but my first story ever for Four Corners was the big league. It was yeah. about yeah. rugby league. And it, it uh, and I'm sure it happened for much this same reason. Ironically, the, the executive producer of the ABC at the time was brought in from... Uh, Pommy Land, yeah. Jonathan Holmes, ex-Panorama, very, very smart guy. Yeah. And he saw what a lot of people didn't see, the, the need to de-pommify, yeah. you know, Four Corners. Charles Woolley used to say it was like the elephant's graveyard yeah. there, you know. <laughs> and uh, and so that was a, probably one of the reasons I got recruited because I was actually working on Countrywide, you know, yeah. on the, from out of the rural space and they saw some work I did and it was in the bush and it was different and I didn't sound like a, I, yeah. I'd been to Cambridge. I definitely yeah. hadn't been to Cambridge. <laughs> and uh, anyway, um, so they pulled me in and my brother was, is Roy Masters, yeah. the rugby league coach, and I was really into rugby league. You know, I really liked it a lot, working class game. So my first story that I pitched was about professionalism in sport. Mm. It was still a little bit North Shore dinner party, but mm. still, you know, it, we could we could get... You know, they're paying these heathens now. That's right, <laughs> yeah, and the, the boot money for the rugby players and all yeah. that sort of stuff. So, and, and then in the course of... I worked with a great... Uh, I was really lucky I had this uh, producer who was an instinctive investigative reporter, Peter Manning, and I was digging in and we were starting to hear these stories about rugby league scandals, yeah. about Kevin Humphreys, the former head of the uh, Australian Rugby League, at the, which it was at the time, uh, being involved in some sort of dodgy thing, you know, uh, corruption. And uh, we started looking into it and, you know, it, it suddenly had legs. And the story took, as they often do, you start doing this and it takes you in a different direction. And, and so I, we ended up with the big league, which started a, a royal commission. You, you, at this point, are a very inconvenient person for a lot of people, probably including your brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, 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 I, I was a problem t as as I realised that the story was going to uh, do a lot of harm. You Sorry, know. Roy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sort of tried to keep Roy out of it, and he, I'm sure he did pay a price for it too. He rang me up after the program went to air, and he told me he was proud of me, mm. uh, but but at the time, you know, it, it was devastating for in the in the NRL arena. Yeah, I, I guess you have spent most of your career challenging and holding to account a lot of institutions that people want to believe are pretty pretty good to go, you know, keep chugging along. Well, one of the things that I think happened is because because I didn't have that traditional inner-city newsroom upbringing, yeah. I didn't know what I couldn't do, Yeah, you know. So yeah. so uh, I was very open-minded about, about taking on big institutions and... And that is what I noticed about uh, some of that early work. You know, when the big leg happened, Jonathan Holmes said to me afterwards, uh, well, Chris, you know, this sometimes happens. You know, your biggest story happens to be your first. Don't ever expect it to happen again. And I thought, I don't know. Mm. 
doesn't sound right to me, you know. And I would say that the corruption stuff kind of found me rather than the other way around. It was... Uh, people forget, you know, in the 1980s, like at 1984, a uh, police officer with, with a little toddler in his arms, you know, about to put him to bed at Chatswood, suburban Chatswood in Sydney, gets shot twice in the chest through the back of window of his kitchen. I mean, you'd think about that happening in Colombia or, yeah, yeah, or yeah, Calabria, yeah. but no, it, it happened in Chatswood and uh, the the cops were very crook. It was almost like there wouldn't have been a, a uh, police, a state police force in Australia that didn't have serious institutional corruption problems <laughs> where, you know, the, the if you if you worked in the armed hold-up squad, you made your money through armed hold-ups, mm, you know. Yeah. One for you, one for me. If you worked in the in the drug squad, you know, you basically franchised the drugs trade and con- just controlled it. And uh, these stories shocked this little innocent bloke from Batuta, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm, um, I'm just glad that Bob Carr was able to stamp it all out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I... He did a great I, job. I know. What, you, you kind of find yourself in that position a lot where you're looking at people who have made a, their life, d- dedicated their life to doing something. Something Quite often it's something that's noble. Mm. And quite often you find out that they're actually doing the exact opposite whenever they get the chance. Yeah. Or like almost aiding what they're trying to stop. Yeah. Um, how, what do you think goes on in the minds of of a lot of these people? Do you think they are corrupted, say police or or you know uh, defence force or you know Queensland state government, or do you think they get in there because they've got an itch to scratch? Um, I think they they become corrupted over yeah. time. I think you know it's almost like there's two people, two types of people in the world: uh, those who believe that humans are basically decent and will do the right thing and those who believe that you know you do what you can get away with mm-hmm. and that that first person can become that second person that's one of the things that galvanized me about the cop stuff mm-hmm. because uh you, you need uh you need a lot of moral energy to do this work i mean honestly it's not funny it's really really hard and 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 demoralizing you know you just yeah. you never talk to anybody that's cheerful it's like I'd met so many disgruntled police officers, I was really still looking for a gruntled one, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, Anyway, that was the... The cri de cour was this young police officer who was doing undercover work and he's he's been accepting money from a superior officer and that really meant something because that suggested systemic corruption, Mm -hmm. you know. And he didn't want to take the money because the, taking the money was a crime against his conscience, but not taking the money was a crime against his career. He couldn't mm. admit that he wasn't taking the money because they wouldn't trust him. Yeah. And this just struck me as being outrageous. You yeah. know, we spend a billion dollars on a police force who end up working for the other side. And I remember going to his house and I remember him telling me the story, but not really wanting me to do anything about it. I remember his wife, you know, who taught, taught Indigenous kids in a local school. They they could have used the money. They really yeah. they, they 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 were were, were living poor, uh, but give them massive credit. You know, they knew that it was wrong and they didn't know what to do. So people talk about you know why we need journalists, why we need journalism. This is why we need journalism. You know, who else is going to do those stories? The institution was massively failing. And I think that in the cops, you know, there were almost three groups. There was 
There were the Boy Scouts who would never do the wrong thing. They, therefore, they were never trusted and, and just put in benign areas. Mm-hmm. You know, there were the tough guys, the hard guys who drank with all the crooks and knew all the stuff. They'd become criminals, perhaps without realising it, they probably did. Uh, and, and, you know, they, they were kind of the heroes of the police force, mm-hmm. uh, the bad guys. And then... The biggest group is the group in the middle that just has to find a way to operate. Mm-hmm. You know, so see no evil, hear no evil. Mm. <laughs> and so the prefects who go straight from, you know, school captain to the police force who imagine they're going to follow the same trajectory just stay at the bottom. Yeah, yeah. And that yeah. becomes very uh, demoralising yeah. for the ones... That was one of the good things that happened, I think, that... I mean, people say that you, you'll never reform the police force, They're in corruption will never go away, which is true enough. But there are significant diff- differences between the police force of today and the one that I saw in the early 80s, you know, where yeah. coppers who got on were the ones who got on the piss at lunchtime, you know, yeah. and, uh, and uh, um, now they kind of go to the gym or... You know, they go home to their wife and get sleeve tattoos. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's one thing to take what you learnt as as a journalist in a small town and applying that to, say, to rugby league or to a police force. But the first time you won a gold logie, correct me if I'm wrong, was investigating the, the sinking of the Rainbow Warrior, which was done by the French special forces yeah dgsc yeah. yeah how how did you manage to uh to take what you learned investigating you know the cops the rugby league being a journalist in a small town how do those skills help you with your first kind of overseas big yeah big investigation it was a very unusual story in that it was a big international story that happened to occur in our backyard. I mentioned Peter Manning before. He really should get a lot of credit for that because it was that sort of hanging around typewriters forever that somehow gave him an instinct that there was something more to this story. Because when it first happened, people didn't know the French Secret Service were behind it. You know, Hmm. some lunatic ex-Vietnam vet or someone like that, you know, with a grudge against the Greenies. But anyway, um, he said... Go over to Auckland, Chris, and uh, have a look into this. And he said, and, and you better take a backup story, you know, like a, my backup story was the New Zealand economy, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, wool's still good. <laughs> <laughs> so I actually had the file, the New Zealand economy file, and uh, dragged them to the ABC archive and then read on the plane. And I think the first meetings I had were with business people and stuff like that, but then I turned up at the local cops. And then it started to, to break in front of me. It was classic old style wear out shoe leather type journalism you know you've got to get out of the office and here's a great story I reckon it's uh, um, the moment that I knew that something was on with that story was when I was sitting with a New Zealand police officer who was on the case they nick, the, the locals journalists nicknamed him uh, Lockjaw because he wouldn't yeah. tell us anything we'd been out and about we'd been checking out a few things we'd been to the car rental agencies and it's few th- the, the pattern started to form and I started to think the French Secret Service are behind this and I went into the police station and I was just talking to Lockjaw and I said, do you know what, I think the French Secret Service are behind this and it was just the look on his face, that's all. 
you'd never pick it up over the phone, let mm. alone the internet. But mm. the look on his face said to me, he agreed with me, you know. And uh, so, you know, we poured everything into it. And uh, it was uh, it was probably the only story that I ever did that was 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 like an adventure story yeah. it, it, it's it's how you wish journalism was because it was exciting not to forget that it was built on the death of somebody you yeah. know journalism is also like being a vulture sitting on yeah. the yeah, top yeah. of the tree but you know it, i went to numea and chased them around the world ended up in paris got to paris and uh, knew that this was an international story knew that I was well in front of the media pack, thought, what was I going to do? And I, I did a little bit of information trading, you know, which is what happens in the security intelligence yeah. circles and journalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, who would be the Brian Tui of, of France? You know, who would be the guy that yeah. has good uh, uh, spy contacts? And I, we, we found, found such a guy. I met him and I said to him, um, look, I know a lot about what happened in New Zealand. It's going to be a big story here. Can you help me connect me to a few of your sources? And he did. And and then, you know, the, the timing was exquisite. The program went to air on the same night that the lead story in the news was that the that the Fra- France had looked into this issue and uh, had nothing to do with the sinking yeah. of the Rainbow Warrior and then we put this program to where <laughs> that demonstrably proved otherwise and, and it got so they could shown have just, all They could have just held off on denying it by about 24 hours and it would have looked much less corrupt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, um, did that cause an international incident? Did that cause... Oh, I mean, yeah. I remember. I remember the rugby matches and, and all the just and to this day, France and New Zealand. You know, the, the Kiwis talk shit about the French to this day. Well, you know, I remember talking to the Australian Foreign Minister at the time, and he privately told me, "Look, Chris, this is this is the problem with being a really small country like Australia or New Zealand." He said, "The superpowers can shit on us if they want to, and they do." And uh, when we were in Numea, and they thought we were New Zealanders, you know, they were they were spitting on us like, you know, how dare you complain about us invading your sovereignty? Uh, and uh, you know, there was a boycott on French lamb and all that sort of stuff, mm. but. But it did. It, it did. Uh, it crashed all down around their ears. Um, our new was the f- French defence minister, and he got he got sacked. I felt a bit sorry for the DGSE people, you know, because they were just they were spies doing their job, and they ended up getting locked up in a New Zealand uh, prison. It was funny because. The other thing about that story, of course, is it's television, you know, yeah. and television is mostly entertainment. You know, it's this hybrid form where you put journalism together with documentary making and, yeah. uh, you know, w- with what's going to win. But And I had to make a television program that people would want to watch and, and, if, and I'm interested in filmmaking and uh, it, was a, it was a perfect TV story, but there's nobody to interview, so what do you do? You, you need a vehicle to tell the story. The vehicle literally was the vehicle. What had happened is the French Secret Service had hired a Newman's camper van and uh, they, they were driving around in it pretending to be holiday makers. Then they put it in at the airport and this is why you don't commit terrorism in a village. The reason they got found out is because uh, when they were going to, to drop the bomb onto the Rainbow Warrior, uh, when they came back ashore, there was... 
a neighbourhood watch group that were watching out because there'd been pilferage on the on the yachts in in Auckland <laughs> Harbour, and they spotted this camper van and they wrote down the number plate. Wow! And they reported to the cops, and then the bomb goes off. The cops have this report. They trace the camper van. Uh, they're waiting at the airport when Prieur and Mafar, the French couple, yeah. turn up to to take it back, and that's how they were taken into custody. So they did their, you know, forensics, which wasn't anything like CSI. I think no. it probably took about half an hour, you know. <laughs> they did their for- forensics and then the, the, the camper van went back to Newman's and we turn up the next day and say, can we rent that camper van? Yeah. Oh, right. And we did. <laughs> we, we rented the exact camper van that the Secret Service people used and then we just simply used it to retrace their steps and filmed the whole thing. Really? That, and so that added to the kind of theatrical element of the of the report on the on the TV show. But did you did they leave anything around? Did they leave anything? Well, you know, they they had a party. You know, that that was the thing about they were all, uh, they were spies, but they were also French. They were French, yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, one of them had an affair with a New Zealand police officer's wife. <laughs> um, um, and you know that was that that camper van thing the number plate being written down that actually happened twice you know there was a a second group of them that were met up in a forest all very spooky and somebody saw this group of people meeting in a forest and they thought that it was dodgy you know so they actually wrote down that number plate as well so the french thought they were going to the south pacific to have this uh, mighty party but they didn't realize that everything they do would be noticed yeah in in these small coastal towns yeah. yeah and they just yeah because of the teenagers who'd been stealing stuff from boats over the weeks prior the french secret service were um they must have thought that was so clever too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, as you said, that was a big international story, and I guess this is you, you, another big story you did for Four Corners was um, almost international under Sir Joe's Queensland. It really wasn't much like uh, Sydney. No, at that no, point. the Moonlight State. The Moonlight yeah. State. Yeah. Well, here's my one joke about the Moonlight State. <laughs> I used to say, um, you know, you could see corruption; it was visible. You know the, the, you know, just have they had the big, big prawn and the big pineapple and whatever, they they should have had the big penis in yeah. Fortitude Valley. You know, it's like it was so obvious, uh, and uh, all the coppers dining in the the rest Chinese restaurants, you know, for free, mm. um, which 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 was their given, but nobody doing anything about it. You know, in many respects. The local media also gets drawn yeah. into it. You know, Terry Lewis had been made Father of the Year, and he was being promoted as a great guy. Uh, and people are getting their stories as the, the cops are giving them drops, etc. Yeah. Anyway, I used to think that um, that um, all these coppers chewing on the gristle of corruption at the Chinese restaurants, uh, uh, you know, if, if if the AFP couldn't get him. And the NCA wouldn't get them, then the MSG might. <laughs> very, very cultured, uh, you know, corrupt police officers too, with their uh, sweet and sour pork. That was very, you know, very experimental for Queensland in the eighties. <laughs> so, just quickly, I mean, being there was the Moonlight State, and of course, then they revisited it with uh, Willacy on uh, ABC Four Corners about two oh, yeah. or three years ago yeah. when they'd released all those, a lot of documents that had kind of been sealed. There was a lot of a lot that I didn't know. Yeah. You know it was funny because uh, 
Investigative journalism tends to be, uh, the dangers tend to be overstated. It's dangerous to work in investigative journalism in Colombia and Indonesia, but it's not so dangerous in Australia. So I don't want to play that up. But I have to say, you know, based on uh, retrospectives, they would have killed me if they'd have known what was coming, you know, because there was a billion-dollar enterprise there and suddenly people's everything, everything was at stake. Politicians, senior lawyers, you know, not just the brothel owners, that they could simply go to jail because of this this program. And uh, the federal police... Did know things were going on because yeah. they were conducting phone taps and they were. Were they all fairly new at that point? They'd been the Commonwealth Police and yeah. they weren't long the Federal Police and they tended to be disparaged by the State Police, <laughs> but they had powers that meant that they could look into stuff and they kept seeing that jobs were being blown and they knew the cops were crook. Yeah. Anyway, I got in touch with a federal police officer who ended up becoming a, a good friend of mine. He was on that program. His name's Dave Moore. And he started looking out for me. I always thought I initiated the contact. Yeah. It wasn't until he told me years later that actually they were worried about me. You know, They thought that I could come to significant harm because I was starting to knock on too many doors yeah. and the... And the these, the the bad guys in the Queensland cops and let, let alone the criminal community were starting to become a little bit unnerved. So they actually made no secret of their connection to me. I mean, I, I was staying in the Tower Mill Hotel up on Wickham Terrace. Yeah. And I, they t- told me to not use the phones. You know, the phones were being tapped. Well, <laughs> the old, what was the old Saint song? The walls have eyes, the phones have ears. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I used to, uh, knowing that um, that they were coming in and searching my room, I used to write bullshit stuff on the notepad yeah. and then I'd tear the paper off, you know, because so, I knew they'd read the imprint. <laughs> 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 and I... I, I, give, I them, give, them, give them dodgy tips for, the, for, for race eight. <laughs> and I, I'd come down and... Uh, go and use the local phone booth and whenever I use the local phone booth somebody in sensible shoes would move into the neighbouring one you know and Gosh. and so they they were telling the feds this is a special branch under Sir Joe was I think it course? was the BCI the yeah. Bureau of Criminal Intelligence yeah and they uh, the, I remember being in the room at the Wickham Terrace and Dave taking me over to the curtain and saying see that brown Kingswood down there that's a a BCI car, you know, they'd trace the number plate back. They used to rent old wrecks and, you know, use them for cops' work. One of the good things about developing anti-tail, yeah. anti-tailing, any, any people following you, is just be a shithouse navigator. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because one time I was driving down onto the f- freeway and realised I was going the wrong way and I was about to turn onto the on-ramp and I didn't want to. So I sort of Put, put the brakes on and looked in the rearview mirror to see if I could back up, and I saw this car full of cops behind me. <laughs> uh, so, so, just to summarise for the listeners who might be a bit a bit young and maybe only grew up under the extremely non-corrupt, uh, beaty, bly, you know, um, Newman governments, um, Sir Joe, 1980s Queensland, but the back end, 1987, you released Moonlight State. And just to quickly summarise what was very much a very, very uh, complex and probably well put together criminal organisation, there was a bribe syndicate going from street level organised crime to the police to potentially higher than that. And actually, I think that 
you, you did find it was higher than that. And there was a bag man running... The bag man was Jack Herbert. Jack Herbert. They, they nicknamed the Joker. And, of yeah. course, mm. the, the joke was on everybody. Yeah. Uh, the critical piece of evidence that was uncovered was the, 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 the link between the underworld and the police hierarchy, um, the, the syndicates as they were known. There were two major brothel come illegal gambling um, syndicates. They, uh, they would channel the money through Jack Herbert yeah. Who were, who was the bag man? He was a pickup, drop off. And he used to be a licensing branch. He never rose beyond sergeant, ex ex uh, British copper. I caught up with him afterwards. You know, we actually spent a bit of time together. Uh, and uh, he, his wife hated me. I could remember her sort of staring daggers at me in the kitchen. But you know, he knew it wasn't personal. And yeah. he uh, and we, strangely enough, we were kind of bonded. I think by such an intense experience. He was a funny guy, really was. Uh, he, he admitted, and honest, dishonest. You know, in that he'd say, "Oh, my problem was Chris. I was greedy. You know, I just, yeah. I just loved money." But uh, he also loved his family, and they, they got him in England. He pissed off to England, and they sent the prime minister's jet to pick him up. So he was such a big witness, you yeah. know. And he rolled. And they, they, the, his old mates, of course, um, hate him for that. But look, they all roll. Yeah. You know, the the jails are full of people who roll, no yeah. matter no matter what they say. Anyway, uh, Jack beca- was put into uh, became a protected witness, and uh, and and they thought there was this massive price on his head, so they were watching him as closely as they could. But he kept he kept turning up at his family's house or they kept spotting him with his family and they couldn't figure out why what happened is that he they put him in an apartment on the gold coast and they knew that sounds like a nice safe place for someone who may uh you know be bringing down the bioki peterson government <laughs> well that that's where he lived he lived on one of those sort of canal estates and but anyway what he used to Beautiful. do was he'd uh, he'd get his beach towel and hang it over the balcony and his wife and family would drive around the Goldie looking for that beach towel and so oh, they right. so they kept finding him all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean there was the sex trade that was happening, which was all and it's all very funny as well. I mean in terms of the theatrical element you have to offer in a on the, in the documentary side of things. This is one of the most conservative governments we've seen in Australia at a state level particularly so you had this hardcore Lutheran, uh, Sir Joe Bjorki-Peterson, uh, who flat-out banned condoms in Queensland. Yeah, yeah. But was, there were a lot of people in his government and the, definitely the police force that were overlooking illegal brothels and casinos and marijuana. Was There was the North Queensland, yeah. the Italian connection from North Queensland That's was right. bringing in dope. Yeah, um, and, and, and more than that. Yeah. Uh, and, they, you know, Joe couldn't stop the devil at the border, but he pretended he could... And um, in in some respects, also the power of television. This, if you had to look at what really made a difference with that program, and lots of other journalists worked on it, and lots of other journalists deserve a lot of credit for the for the hard hard work they put into it. Looking back at it purely academically, trying to sort of figure out what it was that you know tipped that over the edge, and it made it a big issue. Well, one of the issues probably was simply taking the cameras into the girly bars you know because that national party heartland couldn't deny the imagery you know yeah it, it was so 
to many people it would have been benign, yeah. but, you know, they were genuinely shocked. There was some criticism that we shouldn't have put such lascivious stuff to yeah. air, but I actually reckon it, it, it actually helped a lot. Well, even the... Um, I mean, that, that's how powerful the, the movement was behind Joe... Um, you know, in terms of his Trumpian kind of the original Trump with his elections and his and his campaigning, he was flipping Labor seats in inner city Brisbane to the National Party. So New Farm would have been yeah. New Farm Fortitude mm. Valley was the National Party seat, mm, mm. and a lot of Australia, again, a lot of Queensland was kind of adhering to that, that those kind of values. Um, so you definitely would have blown a lot of uh, lids. In terms of um, the base, it was. It was. He seemed omnipotent, and of course, uh, absolute power, absolutely corrupts, and that's really what went wrong for him. What I didn't realise at the time was that his power base was crumbling. You know, he had done the sort of Joe for Canberra tilt, and that didn't work so so well. And there were so. And uh, the thing about corruption is, it's not just a, a, a moral issue; it's also a practical one. If you uh, generate corruption, you mean it, that means the bad guys win. Yeah. So the the crappy developers were getting the good jobs as against the more reputable developers who were thinking, well, we paid money to the National Party, but yeah. we didn't pay enough, you know. And so uh, there there was beginning to be a bit of a backlash. I I think I hadn't really seen that coming, but some of my allies, some of the people who supported uh, the Fitzgerald inquiry were actually members of the National Party you know had seen this this going wrong so there's a funny story in the middle of all this in the moonlight state there was two coppers in, in Fortitude Valley who had a very intense night on the job one night where they kind of revealed to one another that they were both good guys you're talking about the Cole Dillon oh Cole Dillon yeah right, where right, he, right. so he was the young Aboriginal officer right, in Fortitude yeah. Valley who they gave him a bottle of scotch or yeah. something, yeah. and he joined the police force for all the good reasons, um, mm. you know, to help his people and mm. you know reconciliation and all that kind of stuff. And then the scotch bottles just kept appearing in his locker. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and that's one of the things about the crooked cops is they did have an antennae for one another. They would yeah. be able to sniff one another out. But thankfully, it was also true of the of the other guys you know the, they they tended to find one another and the whole story opened up for me because uh one of cole's mates a police officer called jim slade who was the one i mentioned at the beginning yeah. who was sitting in the room not wanting to tell me the story undercover cop who'd been offered a bribe by his superiors he'd actually gone to a police college and shared a room with a, an intel guy from Canberra, from the Australian Bureau of Crime Intelligence called Peter Vassallo. Uh, Peter was the expert on Italian organised crime. So Peter was the one who told me about Jim and Cole, etc. And, and that's why I went up to Queensland. So just quickly before we go, Chris, I just want to ask you how you were able to, you know, this is obviously a few years later, turn your focus onto a personality as opposed to an organisation with... Um, your work on Alan Jones and how you've been able to forge a career in the years after you've gone after the only man in the <laughs> Australian media that you simply cannot talk about <laughs> at all. Well, yeah. There was an institution and that of course was our own institution, this very institution broadcasting, you know. Is this your first uh, talkback radio interview ever? <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember thinking, you know, when 
Peter Ryan was the police commissioner. Bob Carr, you mentioned before, yeah. was the premier. Uh, Peter Ryan was an honest guy, you know, probably a bit, bit out of the loop, you know, didn't really know what was going on. He was brought in from England. Uh, and, uh, in, in fact, he lived in my street. I knew him a little bit. We weren't friends or anything. Uh, but um, he ends up being, being rolled by this sort of ugly cabal of people that I didn't have any respect for, you know, and Carl let that happen. And I just thought, boy, this guy, Jones, is powerful, no doubt about it, you know. And I thought, uh, yes, he, he works in my same industry, uh, but, I, um, but I think, you know, you, you must challenge power and abuse of power wherever you see it. By the way, you know, Alan Jones and I were both inducted into the Australian Media Hall of Fame on the same night. The people, they put me up first because they knew that if I knew that Jones was going to get one as well, yeah. I, I wouldn't have turned up and I wouldn't have either. It, it, it just says a lot about our industry, doesn't it? You know, we, we couldn't be more different, mm -hmm. but in, in, you don't have to have the same values to be elevated in the media industry. Do you um, do you find people you didn't even wouldn't have even thought was in the inner circle were in the inner circle giving you calls? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You know, because uh, you, you, I mean, you ended up writing a rather big book. About, sure, yeah. About yeah. The man, the institution. Because I'm sure that if we wrote an article about Alan Jones this afternoon. The phone had ring. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of lot of there are a lot of witnesses out there, and I think the story hasn't hasn't isn't over. But I mean, a classic interview would be like this: I would go into the office, a very well appointed office of a, a high liberal liberal person, and he would say to me, "Look, Chris, I know Alan is toxic. You know, I I, I know that he's a stain on democracy." But um, but it just doesn't pay to oppose him. So the only way we can deal with him is to let him think we're doing what he wants to do. But we can't. We can never attend to his demands because if we do, we're in massive trouble. Do you find? I mean, at this point, your own brother is now a rugby league icon. Did you find that comes as an advantage as as being Roy's brother? Um, you weren't necessarily jumped on as hard as you know some. Maybe, maybe know. I'm 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 am still Roy's brother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I introduced myself as as Roy's brother. I think that uh, look because that's the, those circles overlap as well with this Roy, book. Yeah, they do. And, and Roy has look. Roy's Roy's one of the best, if not the best, sports reporter in Australia. I think you know, you look at his contacts; they they are brilliant. And uh, they're, they're at every level. I mean, he really knows the game, but he's also got an economics degree. You know, he also knows the politics and the economics of the game. And I think what, what, what we have in common is we both recognise that the best sources are middle-level sources. Yeah. A lot of senior journalists, they only talk to the elite. The elite will only ever tell them what they want them to know. They'll get big stories all the time, but they don't really realise they're being fed... Low-level sources can be quite helpful, uh, but they don't know that much. Mid-level sources are the best, and, and, and that's Roy, Roy's very well connected to them. So just one more thing I want to get your thoughts on is that this type of extended reporting is quite expensive. You've got to 
you know, you've got to, to pay these reporters to be working on a story for a couple of years maybe. And journalism as we know it now in its traditional forms is is shrinking mm. basically because of the money issue that no one really wants to pay for journalism anymore. Where do you see it going from here? Oh, I think it'll take a generation. I don't think you... There's clearly a need for journalism. Mm-hmm. There's clearly a need for Nick McKenzie and, and Kate McClymont. And I think the new generation of journalists are actually better than my generation. Mm-hmm. And I think the main reason for that is they're in a fight for their professional lives and they know it, you know, whereas when I came into the business, I could have a 25 years mm-hmm. career at Four Corners. I mean, you know, I'm not sure that that's, that can, is, is possible anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're fighting to avoid getting a job as a press secretary. <laughs> it's hard. I mean, you know, I, 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 they should invest more in investigative journalism because yeah. it's it's the story that launches a thousand stories. You yeah. know, yeah. It's, it not only validates us and not only gives us credibility with the public, but it's it also, um, you know, sells a lot of newspapers and 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 rates very well. Uh, but it. It, it is uh, extremely expensive and costly, but mostly costly to the practitioners, I have to say. You know, Kate just got an award, I think, and, you know, she she talks like I talk about, you know, the sort of stress and pressure of endless court cases and waking up to the sound of your own heartbeat, you know, yeah. your blood pressure. And, and Nick, Nick uh, is a fabulous reporter and he's... It's it's nearly it's nearly exhausted him. He's only forty, you know. Yeah. And it'll wear him out really quickly. I had to kind of find a way to um, measure it. Like, it you become obsessive. You become your own worst enemy. You know, nobody wants to talk to you at a dinner party. You, you become Scotty from marketing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, and so I used to think, well, I can't just be investigative. I have to be reflective. I have to do some stories that aren't completely dependent on, on revelation. How do you, I mean, and it's changed so much probably since you first started where you could actually just be, uh, people would look and take your work for what it was, I guess, pre-internet, pre, um, it's probably pre-internet, pre-culture wars, you could just say, look, I'm not a diehard greenie, but I am interested in the French Secret Service blowing up a Greenpeace boat. Of course, But yeah. if you ran that story nowadays, people would you'd be getting hammered for your agenda. Yeah. How, how do you think that's going to... Do you reckon that also will have to balance out and a new etiquette will have to develop? I, I, I think the old etiquette should hold. Yeah. That journalists aren't campaigners, yeah. that they, they understand what a fact is, and the art is to make what is important interesting uh, stories are extremely complicated and and there's sometimes joy in the complexity and that's where the craft is you know uh, this whole notion that we are, we tell the stories through the prism of the left or the prism of the right is ridiculous in my view and when I see journalists who think the main game is whatever their beef happens to be um, you know, I, I think they could use a bit of objectivity, and I think some of those old notions of fairness and balance, which got massively disparaged through my career, um, uh, are actually really important. Uh, it's fair enough you can say that it is impossible to understand an absolute truth, and it's none of us are completely objective. But there's no reason not to try, yeah. And, yeah. and it's the trying that is really that's what what makes you proud of journalism. 
Well, we try and uphold those uh, those values here in the um, Queensland Channel country. Um, Chris, thank you for joining us. It's a great honour. Everything we've just spoken about here were all from different corners of the country, different corners of the planet, and um, are all stories that you know people in in our trade talk about, and they talk about it at uni, they talk about it on the job. So. Um, Yes, very uh, uh, an icon, as I mentioned at the start. Thank you for joining us. Good on Thank you. you. Thank you.